Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Big day in the NBA. We had the first ever coach breaking out his laptop in a post-game news conference to complain about the officiating on the very game that we did for the NBA strategy stream. We will talk amply about King's Bucks. The Clippers and the Wolves, two of the best teams in the West, matching up Rudy Gobert against uh, his old foils in LA. That was a fascinating game as well. But first, Danny, the Pistons. Tom Gores is not going to take it anymore. They are set up now to have over $60 million in cap space. If only Ben Gordon, Charlie Villanueva, or Josh Smith were available, that they could truly take advantage of the flexibility they've now garnered. I believe all three of those gentlemen are available right now and would happily take their money. But um, it's... It, it it does seem less likely to that those contracts will come out now. Instead, we'll find out who the new Ben Gordon is. And yeah, we had a trade involving two of the lower lights in the Eastern Conference. And the, the terms of it, with some generalities in terms of the picks, Den, Detroit is trading Marvin Bagley III, Isaiah Livers, and two second-round picks that are described as conditional in 25 and 26. And apparently, it is extremely convoluted with what those picks are. That's why I'm tolerating the, the, Something will go, right? Like the conditional is just, we don't know what it's going to be, but I be- it's not I conditional believe- in the sense of like in the NFL where like, oh, well, if the guy plays 400 snaps or something, then it becomes a silence. I don't it's, believe it's that. Yeah. The, that's yeah. not allowed within the league. And so, yeah, and it being a 25 and a 26 is, is also kind of, well, at least that's the reporting out there because to my knowledge, the Pistons don't have any second round picks in 2025. Whatever. We'll figure out what that is eventually. But Bagley, Livers, two second round picks for Danilo Gallinari and Mike Muscala. And the biggest impact of this trade, to my eye, is the sending of Marvin Bagley the third to Detroit or to to from Detroit to Washington because Bagley is the only player involved in this transaction who has a multi year obligation. Troy Weaver signed Marvin Bagley to a ill advised contract, paying him to a flat twelve point five million a year for three years. The third year of that is twenty four twenty five. So one of the primary thrusts of this trade is that the Wizards in it to give up twelve point five million in spending power, not rigidly capped space depending on how these things are going they got two second round picks for their trouble this reminds me of a trade that the pistons were once on the other side of where they gave up 
and Andre Drummond, who had a year left on his contract to the Cavs, basically getting back some seconds. I think they, they technically got something for him instead of having to pay to get off him. But basically, this is two teams that might have flexibility next offseason. One of them deciding, nope, we would rather have more flexibility. The other one saying, not nah, give us uh, some picks instead. And that's what the Wizards have done. The Wizards are, in theory, at a different place than Detroit in their rebuilding process. But they could have had over $25 million in cap space. Instead, they vaporized half of that with Marvin Bagley III, and they probably will stay over the cap. And given what they are trying to do, really a down-to-the-studs rebuild, perhaps in a way that Detroit never has, right? I mean, there, there's some contrast here that Detroit, as much as they have had flexibility at times, signed players with cap space, they've never quite done the full acknowledgement that we're not trying to get better at all on the floor over the next couple of years the way the Wizards are the Wizards have gone into full rent out their cap space mode and that is uh, what Marvin Bagley entails although a backup center actually like Marvin Bagley could actually help these guys probably he's the best backup center on the roster he is and the Wizards have needed that though they have been at times surprisingly successful in the Danilo Gallinari at center minutes it has been because they've been great on offense and shaky on defense and so everything is relative uh, as well so when you say surprisingly (laughs) successful because they've been overall overall yes and and so one of the questions with this trade is just kind of like we have what are what are these teams intending to do with the players involved i think bagley is going to be the backup five for the wizards backing up daniel gafford he is a talented offensive player we did a whole segment on him on a 15 and 60 a little while back and but he is extremely limited defensively the same reasons that he didn't quite work at either the four or the five in sacramento are largely coming into play in detroit And then you have Isaiah Livers, who I've liked at other points in time, but has had an absolutely disastrous run with the Pistons. His true shooting percentage in the year is about 45 last I saw it, which is a problem. He has been an actively negative player for them. And why I brought up like the so but livers, you know, a pending unrestricted free agent, the Wizards could they don't need as much kind of like random frontcourt players. But if he play if he can play, then they'll give him a shot where I'm interested in this beyond the cap space part, which I want to talk about again afterwards is what is Troy Weaver's intention with Gallo and with Mike Muscala? Because part of what Detroit has been so desperately needing is credible floor space. And so there is a way where playing Gallo, playing Muscala gets the Pistons to better spacing, makes life easier on one Cade Cunningham and produces a better outcome. But there's also a scenario where both of those players are doing this either for now or in part, not that they have a ton of control over the matter, to be somewhere else. And yes, they're out of Washington, but they are on a team that has about half as many wins right now. And if they, but both of them, you know, like Gallo and Muscala could theoretically get bought out. They could end up on a team that is competing for something other than not breaking the loss record. And so we'll, we'll have to see. And the answer might be column A and column B. Maybe they're going to try them at the beginning. We'll have to see. Yeah. For Washington, they generally have not done amazingly well, I would say in their transactions they're still getting something but a couple of nebulous seconds in 2025 for taking on 12.5 million of Bagley now you might say Bagley's like an okay backup center so you know what what would be a fair contract for him like six or seven million so they overpaid by six million it's only 
$6 million dead money, but they don't really need Marvin Bagley either. I guess he is a backup center who at least can play some pick and roll with the guys in the roster now and whoever they draft and you know, at least make things slightly easier to develop in a quasi-NBA setting, at least uh, on offense. So I you know, don't have a huge opinion on the price that was paid. It's really more about just where these franchises see themselves at this point in time. And for Detroit, you know, Bagley's been out of the rotation. I mean, I don't think James Wiseman is necessarily better than him, although I, I think Wiseman's watched, worse. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, now if I watched their last 10 games closely enough to really conclude that, I, I will honestly say no. But generally, uh, history is your guide for James. Well, Wiseman you, you, you know who's a better backup positive. center than James Wiseman or Marvin Bagley potentially for the Pistons? Mike Mescala. We'll see if he actually plays. He's also really struggled this year. In he has. Washington. I think these these ankle issues have kind of caught up with him. But yeah, he can at least uh, space the floor. Maybe they'll try to do a little five out, see what that looks like. Try to get maybe just Mescala can be someone who's out there to give them a little better understanding of what they have in some of these young guys. But let's see what Detroit's going to go ahead and do. Maybe it was posited, well, hey, they opened up this space now. Maybe they get more for it in the summer than they do now if they try to take on other bad contracts. Doesn't feel like the Pistons are going to go that route. It seems like there will certainly be a mandate to try to get better. And uh, that's why I referenced the gentleman I referenced in the opening of well, and this segment. I, I enjoy Michael Winger taking over the mantle from Sam Presti, one of his former bosses, as someone I would criticize for valuing his spending power too little. Like the, the you know, that I, I ripped on a bunch of OKC trades over the last couple of years for that, where I thought they sold low on their cap space, including our big old argument that I don't want to revisit on the Al Horford, Danny Green trade, one that we argued about way too much relative to the the impact of that trade. Though, I mean, of course, both those players are relevant. And so for the Wizards, it is true that 24-25 wasn't going to be a big part of their of their plans, but you are also, you know, talking about the relevance of the, the people involved and the benefit of them doing a trade, I'll say now, meaning in the in the month between you know, between now and the deadline, is that I think they are going to function as an over-the-cap team. I think that it, it it's not definitive yet, but that is a reasonable path yeah, for them to take. They have a big trade exception, too, that they can use uh, before the draft with Porzingis. That's $12.5 million. That exactly. So there, there, are ways that, there are ways that they can do this and still use the mid-level, still be clear of the tax. So you could argue that the opportunity cost to them was low, but, I mean, Marvin Bagley is a negative contract, and and so for me, the, the price of getting off it, depending on what we end up finding out about these two picks, is there. And this is also, you know, as as many things are a reminder of how how bad I think Troy Weaver is at his job, not because this trade is bad. I think that it's a good piece of business for them. But he gave up assets to acquire Marvin Bagley, a player that basically no that that we didn't really believe in. He gave him a contract that nobody else would have given him and a contract that was so bad. He then had to compensate the Washington Wizards to take it. So it's like you failed at all of the steps involved in this. And you could even include if you wanted to playing Marvin Bagley as much as as much as they needed to in part because of the contract that he gave him. And so would I have that person, even if this trade is a reasonable piece of business, in charge of my front office for this trade deadline? Hell no. Yeah, I would agree with that. And yeah, I mean, did the opposite of what Sam Presti does with these guys, where he gave up assets coming and going, plus paying the guy as well. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. 
It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Let's turn now to the game of the night. We did it for the NBA strategy stream. It was an unbelievable game. Had two tying or go-ahead shots in the last 10 seconds. One in regulation and then finally Dame Lillard's game winner in overtime. The big story post-game was Mike Brown complaining about the referees. Let's save that part. We will address it, but that's going to be the biggest national news rather than what actually took place in this one. So uh, should we start just talking about some of the strategies and uh, at the end of regulation and at the end of overtime? Because I thought those were all quite fascinating well, leading I- up to Lillard's big shot. I think before we get into that specific part, I want to talk about a strategy that was larger in the game. And I thought you did a really good job of pointing this out on the broadcast, which was Milwaukee, Adrian Griffin doing something that surprised me, given the opponent and the situation going to a lot of two, three zone. And it there were times where it worked really well. I mean, this was an exceedingly offensive game overall. You had offensive ratings, even with some sloppiness at times around 125. So it's not like you could say, oh, they they shut him down. And that's why the Bucks won the game. But Milwaukee going to going to that zone, it definitely took the Kings out of it at some moments, even if some players benefited from it. It did. And the two three, we saw Milwaukee go to this in the season tournament against Indiana. And I think the big idea behind it is to find a way to keep Brooke Lopez as close to the rim as possible. And it also really disrupted the Kings handoff game, which was working beautifully in a 37 point first quarter for Sacramento, getting DeMontis Simonis going downhill. Brooke Lopez tries to stay close to the rim, but because the Kings uh, were doing so many handoffs, they're able to get more threes. They started shooting the crap out of the ball. Sometimes even going zone against the team can just disrupt the rhythm of their threes because they're just a little bit different. They're not exactly how you're normally getting them so they can start nine of 16 from three then they struggled until they finally got into a rhythm late as they affected their comeback in the fourth quarter so what you can do is you just keep those four guys on the perimeter so if you do try to run a little handoff there's another perimeter player waiting to take the guy coming off the handoff and the Kings really struggled with the zone in the first half and then in the second half they started just going to more pick and roll out of the zone to get De'Aaron Fox going get Malik Monk going and Brooke Lopez was still massive at the rim he blocked i think three dunk attempts in this one in spectacular fashion and uh his verticality was uh, the subject of some of mike brown's ire uh, down the end well and well but yeah and before we get to the ire one of the other kind of threads that i thought was really interesting is sacramento it was late it was when once jordy fernandez was running was running the team after mike brown had been tossed where they started getting a lot more active with Kevin Herders in particular at the top of the key, because the top of the key, depending on how you run it, can be a real weakness in a 2-3 zone. And if you have a good shooter there who has a quick release, it can work really well. And Herder, he didn't have the greatest game in the beginning. And it was like, it was Malik Beasley who was the support player who was drilling threes. And then Herder had a huge, I think it was the fourth quarter where he was just drilling shots. And he ended up with 20, 26.69 from three. Yeah, and he was back in the starting lineup. But I think Chris Duarte, is he injured? He didn't play at all. I, I believe he is injured. Yes, I'll check. I'll yeah. check it to make sure. N- nor did Davion Mitchell, nor did Keon Ellis. And so they 
and they I think they figured they needed some more shooting from Herder, uh, and he provided. I do think that the best version of the Kings uh, has him unleashed uh, a little bit more, and you know he doesn't give you amazing on-ball defense, uh, but he is a, a good transition weapon and uh, much better in the handoff game than the likes uh, of Duarte. Talking about the end here, Kings go down twelve after Mike Brown gets. Somehow he avoided a one technical ejection on his first confrontation of the referee where he thought De'Aaron Fox got fouled and and the referee is jogging down floor. Mike Braun basically tries to take a charge on the referee and then begins uh, moving towards him in a very aggressive manner. I think it even could have been a one technical ejection. In fact, then he gets the first technical, then has to be held back. He's continuing to go after the referee as Malik Monk is just laughing his ass off trying <laughs> to hold him back. But he gets a second technical and gets tossed, which actually ended up being pretty important that a second technical was called rather than the old one technical ejection. But I will credit Mike Brown for inspiring his team. That was the nadir for the Kings down 12 in the fourth quarter. They fight back. And the end of regulation was really interesting. Both of these overtime as well for these teams not having any timeouts uh, available for the last 10 seconds or so pick it up with Malik Monk making a second free throw 17 seconds left Bucks call a timeout to advance the ball Kings have one timeout remaining and however the Kings are not in the bonus yet so they had the Bucks advance the ball Kings foul but they're not in the bonus yet and then it seemed like the Bucks didn't have a second play ready didn't know in yeah. their first time out that they had a yeah, foul the King, to give. The Kings, actually, yeah. the Kings actually had not committed a single foul in the entire fourth quarter. It wasn't just that they hadn't gotten into the foul to give, but they just hadn't committed one at all. But of course, yeah. in, in the pros, if you foul, do one, then you're then you're automatically on the precipice. Yeah, so second, so then the Bucks don't have a second play to run. Tried the same one. Pat Connaughton has to take their last time out. And then Damian Lillard, who was struggling with what appeared to be some maybe like a thigh contusion or a thigh cramp, like he really it was not moving well he looked pretty exhausted also they actually get the ball in to Giannis they foul Giannis they didn't have Giannis usually they've been having Giannis be the inbounder they didn't do that Giannis actually makes both free throws Kings now up three Bucks and up three. excuse me yes thank you Bucks up three and perfect execution by Malik Beasley with 10 seconds left Kings are out of timeouts they actually elected to use their last timeout with 11 seconds left and to try to set up a play and Malik Beasley fouls Aaron Fox makes both free throws but still a one-point game and with the Kings only not having any timeouts left you feel like hey it was a good idea to foul here but then the Bucks get it in to Giannis again great job by the Kings oh and by no the way I, I'm not sure if you remember this there was a point here where Malik Monk there was a deflection Malik Monk got really angry that they couldn't review it and because the Kings had burned both of their timeouts they couldn't challenge it it's possible they never showed a replay it's possible that could have been out on Milwaukee and Sacramento would have had a chance to straight up win the game at that point but that we'll never know yeah the, the but Sacramento, with no timeouts left, after the Fox free throws, they deny the ball and bound once. Malik Bunk knocks it away. They deny the ball and bounds again, force it into Giannis, and Trey Lyles fouls Giannis. Giannis makes the first one, but missed the second one short. Trey Lyles gets it to De'Aaron Fox. He's picked up by Giannis full court. Only a two-point lead now because Giannis missed that shot. And you might say, hey, this is the, the danger of fouling that early, particularly when... 
you are also out of timeouts. You can't get the ball in bounds to the guys you want. And Giannis missed the free throw. But Fox just goes right at Giannis. No help from the Bucs because they don't want to give up a three to potentially lose the game. And Fox just incredibly under control, just gets to the corner of the backboard, extends away from Giannis right over him, easy layup to tie the game. And they go into OT. And then down the end of the overtime, it was the opposite well, dynamic with the Bucks trying to come back. It was, but there was a, just a quick thing as we're telling the story. The sure. overtime. Well, first, two two things. One, because just because we didn't talk about in the story of the game, Keegan Murray didn't play in the second half. He had a right a right hip irritation. We'll have to keep an eye on that. I can't couldn't find an injury designation on on Duarte, but we'll we'll find one if we can. Um, so that's why Keegan Murray was not in the game, and they actually ended up going for some stretches away from Harrison Barnes as well, just because they were playing smaller and Lyles was doing a good job. Then to me, the next key stretch was you. So you have the Kings forcing overtime then they score the first three buckets of ot and inspire adrian griffin you only get two timeouts in overtime to burn his first timeout to to basically to let his team know that they need to do something to get back into the game and it to an extent it worked yeah it did i the kings get that lead two fox buckets including just picking lillard's pocket at half court and lillard just again looked exhausted it wasn't protecting the ball at half court turns his back to fox just assumes he's not going to be there and fox just picks his pocket for a dunk and the bucks though in two possessions come back lillard makes a really tough step back that griffin did well to get lillard off the ball on a little iverson cut into a flare screen and hit us a three against fox uh, and then Giannis set up Connaughton in the corner uh, on a drive for another three tie game kings then get a fox 11 foot pull up they're going up against the zone getting the pick and roll and fox getting right to his spot at the free throw line i thought they did a pretty good job on fox in most of the game but uh, less so in the overtime then a second see you could see how exhausted the players were at the end of regulation and in overtime sure and that led i think the exhaustion was a part of the next play as well yeah and chris middleton didn't play because they're on a second night of a back-to-back uh remember middleton played a back-to-back the last time they had a back-to-back but only played the first half so uh, that saga continues lillard got a three-shot foul on her the second three-shot foul that lillard got in this game so bucks now up one he makes all three and then herder comes back and hits that three you were talking about at the top of the two three zone you make the guard guard more on the wing throw it to the top the other guard doesn't want to rotate all the way over that far. So you, you've got a space there. Brooke Lopez, actually, it was his assignment, apparently, in the zone to get all the way out to the top against Herter. That didn't really work uh, when they're in, and uh, he's at the top of the key. Then Lillard misses a three. Malik Monk makes another pick and roll foul line area jump shot to put the Kings up four with 33.2 left. Lillard misses another three with 29 seconds left. Kings have the ball up for 29 seconds left. And and then Malik Monk, their best free throw shooter, misses two free throws in a row. Giannis pushes it up. Brooke Lopez makes an incredible play to start on the left side of the floor, sprint all the way to the right corner, and Giannis finds him. Brooke Lopez, as the pass is in the air, isn't even behind the three-point line. He steps back and somehow doesn't step out of bounds with his huge feet, fading away, makes a corner three to cut it to one. And and worth noting that so a- after that Malik Monk 
two point shot that the Adrian Griffin calls his last timeout. So just like the Kings yeah. were coming back from behind with no timeouts in the in in regulation, the Bucks are then doing an overtime. Brooke Lopez gets his giant feet behind the line, makes that three pointer, but they're still down one with 11 seconds to go, and the Kings have both of their timeouts, though they use one of them immediately to advance the ball. Well, and I'm glad you brought up that second Griffin timeout because even though it was his last timeout, I fully supported taking it with 33 seconds left because they wanted to get the two for one down two possessions and Lillard just missed that shot right uh as it turned out yeah Kings have to take a couple timeouts in a row and then De'Aaron Fox only one out of two from the line so it's a two-point Kings lead after interestingly the Kings inbound the ball to DeMontis Sabonis they had to call one timeout because they got the ball denied inbounds but then for some reason Adrian Griffin leaves Brooke Lopez on the floor in a situation where you're trying to deny the ball inbounds so they get it into Sabonis. They try to foul Sabonis. I thought they did. It doesn't get called. Four more seconds run off the clock, and Fox gets it instead. But he only makes one out of two. And at this point, yeah, no timeouts for the Bucks. They have Lillard inbound the ball. The Kings are trying to deny Giannis the ball because it's only a two-point game. Giannis coming downhill with five seconds left. You don't want to deal with that. But it was really a brilliant setup for Lillard to inbound the ball because once when that guy inbounds the ball, it's really impossible to deny him the ball back if he wants it because if you try to, then he'll just go go behind you and be running downhill when you're behind him. So you just have you have to allow the pass back to him. They deny Giannis. Brooke Lopez comes and gets it instead, gets it back to Lillard. And Fox was trying to deny Giannis the ball initially, never really got quite back in front of Dame. Mm-hmm. And Dame starts going to his left. They probably should have double teamed a little bit harder. Whoever was guarding Brooke Lopez, who is actually behind the play, they don't. And Dame had a beautiful fake. He starts going left. I mean, only Damian Lillard could do. It wasn't a pump fake because it was off the drill, but it was kind of an eyebrow fake while he was still dribbling. Got Fox to commit a little bit. This is from maybe 35 feet. He continues dribbling to his left off that fake. Fox is off with a little bit, and he got a very good look and just another amazing. Damian Lillard shot to win the game uh, from the logo probably as I would say maybe not quite as tough as the one he hit over Paul George in game five of 2019 but pretty darn close just an incredible shot for a game that appeared more than lost for the Bucks. And it capped a ridiculous streak, which production helped us with on the broadcast, that this was, it, it was the 14th, but then became the 15th straight time that the Bucks have beaten the Kings. It is the longest active winning streak of one NBA team against another, and it continued in stunning fashion in this game. Bucks 143, Kings 142. Yeah, some other interesting things in this one. I mean, the Bucks at one point were 16 of 29 from downtown. The Kings suffered through a 3 of 15 stretch after they were so hot to open things there's nobody really turned it over much uh, in this game uh the free throw disparity was i think it was 19 to 5 in the first half yes i believe that's right ended up not being that big of a difference uh, in the second half somehow the milwaukee bucks only had four offensive rebounds for the entire <laughs> game but still had a ridiculous uh, offensive efficiency well i mean they didn't miss that it. many shots they, and that well that was one of the other wild things about the game especially in the early going is that milwaukee actually some the final number is that milwaukee played in the half court on 87 percent of their offensive possessions you'd be like well how the hell could they have an efficient game well they had a 115 first shot half court offensive rating that's 
one of the ways that you can do that. Also, they were very effective at 172 offensive rating when they did run in transition. So they were they were able to make it work in that way. Yeah, a lot of interesting wrinkles. And it, presumably you watched, I'm sure, more of the Mike Brown presser than I did. Um, presumably that free throw disparity was a part of his ire. It, it was. I want to save that till the very end here because okay. there are another couple of interesting wrinkles. We wondered in the pregame, who are the Kings going to put on Giannis Antetokounmpo? <coughs> Excuse me. And the answer was DeMontis Sabonis. Yes. Who only had three personals. Now, the Kings did double Giannis uh, a reasonable amount. Uh, and Giannis had 27 points, 10 assists, uh, and four turnovers. Uh, another triple-double, 40th of his illustrious career. And Giannis actually ended up being negative 13 in this game. Didn't really feel Giannis that much defensively. They are playing the zone quite a bit. It was really Lopez who was the bigger defensive anchor for Milwaukee. And But it, I thought the Kings strategy against Giannis actually was pretty decent you know the Bucks ended up shooting the lights out in the end they also hit a bunch of long twos you know, like Bobby Portis post-ops I thought the Kings defense given their personnel was pretty good I thought it was a blow to the Kings that Keegan Murray had to leave the game because I, he was pretty good on Lillard then they had to put Fox on Lillard and like those two guys were both just so tired by the end having to guard each other and then also be you know the primary perimeter scoring threat for each team and so they didn't really post up Lopez much at all, even though he's being guarded by Harrison Barnes. And so the Bucks tried to go to a lot of Lillard Giannis pick and roll. It worked really well down the end of the first half, worse down the end of the second half, in part because Lillard was so exhausted. And dealing uh, with that you know. quad issue, it appeared. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if, the, if he could have just, you know, could have just been a bruise or something. I, I don't know how bad it really was in the end, but he was definitely he was trying to work on it on the sideline. Um, two uh, other yeah. things I wanted to mention. Um, Giannis never made a two, never made a shot outside of the restricted area other than free throws. Um, he was 0 for 6, missed two threes, two mid-rangers and two floaters. And a lot of those were the kind of Giannis shots that frustrate me where it's like, it's not a flaming bag. You know, there are times where every player, especially a good player, has to take a bad shot. Those are one thing. But there was like one where it's like, oh, Devonta Simonis, you're going to dare me to shoot a 20-footer? How dare you? I'll shoot this 20-footer with 14 seconds on the clock. It's like, no, like that's not that's not what you're trying to do. It's not going to lead to successful, a change in the defensive scheme, even if you make the shot. Yeah, I concur. Uh, Malik Beasley played 45 minutes in this game with Middleton out and Andre Jackson saddled with five fouls uh, in 10 minutes he, he was uh, a fellow starter had even gotten a start recently over Beasley uh, when Chris Milton was healthy uh, but clearly he was trusted uh, by Adrian Griffin in this game five of nine from three 23 points uh, and yeah he's definitely overmatched trying to defend in the perimeter he had a couple of plays where he just lost someone like gave up a, a three to Malik Monk for example but you know he's playing like I don't think that he in and of himself is a problem with the Bucks defense. It's just that he's being thrust into a role that he can't really handle on the perimeter. Jackson Jr. just committed a couple of pretty bad fouls. It wasn't able to be a factor. I'm sure they wanted him guarding De'Aaron Fox. It wasn't able to do that. Uh, just a couple of terrible offensive fouls. He tried this between the legs pass as he was setting a flare screen. They passed it to him and he went between his legs, but then he moved uh, on the screen to pick up his fifth foul. Never came back in. Portis was fantastic. Hit three right shoulder turnaround jumpers over Harrison Barnes, plus 10. Maybe even could have played a little bit more uh, at times in the overtime neither coach made a sub at any point uh, in overtime and Portis also had uh, half of the Bucks uh, offensive rebounds 
Alex Len played a little bit actually with Sabonis, but he was part of a huge foul parade for the Kings as they lost their nice first quarter lead early in the second. He committed three fouls in which he slammed into a someone shooting either a floater or a mid-range jump shot on shots that you really wanted to give up in theory. You know, one of them was on a, a Giannis jumper. So Len trying to provide some size. He's getting ticked now that he's returned from the ankle injury over JaVale McGee, but he committed a, a few ugly fouls and that led to DeMontis Sabonis playing at 45 minutes himself. Let's talk about the presser now. Mike Brown brought out his laptop to discuss why he was so irate at the officials and he mentioned the 19 to 5 first half disparity there are two plays that he referenced one was a challenge that was granted by adrian griffin in which malik monk drove brooke lopez jumped over kind of looked like he jumped from a to b kind of looked like he got his forearm onto monk while also having one hand up and kind of looked like he had his hand that was up forward and that it contacted monk however and i thought that it should not have been overturned because i thought any one of those three things should have been enough to sustain it the referees disagreed so I, i thought brown had a beef there to be sure and the bucks ended up getting possession on that one uh and then you know he complained that sabonis always gets called for that now i will note that when brooke lopez did have his arm away from his body on a monk floater in the second half that the call was granted for the kings uh and you know i i think i didn't agree but you know fine that's that's one call like you just you can't get that worked up over one call now bron getting tossed also may have been a strategy to wake his team up and that uh, did appear to work uh and then the other thing he was pissed off about was damian lillard got a three-shot foul on that play that's so hard to referee when you're going around the screen there's three players coming together the screener the ball handler trying to be as tight to the screener as possible and then the guy guarding the screener and Damian Lillard is uh, maybe the best ever at feeling a little bit of contact from the guy who's guarding him as he comes across the screen and pulling up at the exact moment to draw a three-shot foul Mike Brown said oh he's kind of got his hand on him a little bit on that play but he's not affecting his rhythm balance uh, etc so it shouldn't have been called a foul but you know the hand is on there maybe it shouldn't have been called a shooting foul to me would have been a better argument but then he pointed to a play where De'Aaron Fox got wrapped up a little bit by Cameron Payne on a similar style of action and that was right after he went ballistic because Fox ended up thinking he was drawing a foul and then throwing it away on a wounded duck pass and that's when Mike Braun uh, tried to take a charge on the referee running down the floor and got tossed (laughs) I will give Braun this at least it was such an egregious technical like the referees are now almost waiting until after the play has resolved if there's a fast break to call the technical foul but Mike Braun just didn't give the referee a choice he faced forced uh, the Bucks fast break going the other way to be stopped but as good a theater as this was as interesting as Mike Braun breaking out his laptop to show us the Lillard play and the Fox play was it, it's just seems like a lot of crying to me it, it, it does and especially like pointing to a free throw disparity in the first half that I thought was completely earned and also a part of that story was the Bucks getting into the bonus super early on what seemed to be reasonable calls for me and then they got free throws built on that so like yeah I mean the Kings weren't aggressive in that way I don't think there were too many free throws in the first half in particular that should have been called their way that were not it was just that the Bucks were active in a different way and then when they got into the bonus sometimes it was non-shooting fouls becoming shooting fouls functionally with 
with the rules. So yeah, I I agree with you. I think that Mike Brown was. I mean, sure, there are some calls that don't go your way, but that doesn't mean anything is you know nefarious or anything like that is going on. Like some some things are hard to officiate, and like Giannis is a player in particular who is hard to officiate and often loses on that on that gamble rather than gains. Yeah, and part of what Bron said is like, well, we get told with Sabonis all the time that if you you have to go with two hands up or you can't get a no foul called on verticality. And that actually is not my understanding of the rule. Same. That as long as you have your arm tucked into your body, as long as you're not extending your forearm and knocking the guy backwards as you're going vertical, that you can go up for, it's possible to go up vertical with one hand. And it's like, it's hard to actually block a shot uh, with, like, it's not true that anytime you don't jump with only one hand up and there's contact that it's a foul. Like that's, I I, maybe, Mike Brown, I don't think either understood or was accurately representing what he'd been told by previous officials and so i i think he was kind of just looking for an excuse to, to get pissed off i mean he knew what he was doing obviously he's a veteran coach uh he clearly was trying to make some sort of a point i'm not sure what it is uh you know his team is still 23 and 16 you know i don't think that they're i mean sabonis is another guy who's like kind of a hard guy to officiate but uh i i'm not really sure why he's you know maybe he's making a point in favor of sabonis but sabonis isn't like some great verticality maven necessarily at the rim so i i'm ultimately this was a great soundbite from a, a guy who was coached the year last year uh, but i don't really think he has much of a point here and if he does hey guess what they're gonna be vagaries throughout a game and throughout a season you're never gonna feel like it's perfectly even either way the kings by the way what are their stats uh, before we move on? Yes, thank you. I would have completely forgotten. Sacramento Kings are 23 and 16, 6 and 6 since the last 15 and 60. Their net rating is negative 0.3, which is 18th in the NBA, 13th in offense, 19th on defense, and ESPN's BPI projections have them at 44 wins, which would be 6th in the West, give them a 66% chance of making the playoffs. And one other quick note on the Kings before we move on, as they are a Western Conference team, Sacramento is currently outperforming their point differential in terms of wins by the most in the NBA. So, harkening back to the team they played in this game. Actually, sorry, they have fallen to second with their loss today plus basically plus four wins over expectation there they have the differential of a 40 win team and they are of course 23 and 16 at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, well, let's move on now to the marquee game of the evening, at least coming in, which was Wolves and Clippers. Uh, I will give you the choice of whose stats uh, you would like to begin with here. Let's see. Oh, let's let's do the Clippers stats. The Clippers are 25 and 14 on the season, 8 and 3, strong since the last 1560. They are 
fourth in the NBA in net rating, plus 7.3 per 100 possessions per cleaning the glass, fifth on offense, ninth on defense, one of, I think it's four teams that's top 10 in offense and defense right now. 55 wins BPI would put them second. Yes, that's right. Number two in the West and gives them an a 100% chance, 100% of making the playoffs. Yeah, it seems uh, BPI, we've, this is our first year dealing with them. They do seem pretty darn certain about these things at times. So the big thing that I took away from this game, I believe this is the first time this year that these teams have played, was Rudy Gobert going up against uh, the LA Clippers. And we saw that, of course, uh, in the playoffs in 2021. Uh, Gobert and his Jazz failed in the end, even with Kawhi Leonard getting injured uh, in game four. They got avalanched uh, in that game six. And there was the enduring view of Rudy Gobert trying to guard Terrence Mann and Mann scoring 39 points uh, and making a ton of threes on him. And now Gobert is with the Wolves. He's playing on probably the most talented defense that he's ever played on. And uh, I thought that Gobert was a massive difference maker in this game defensively. The Clippers just could not get hardly anything going at his expense. They weren't even really willing to try him. They could get some mid-rangers every now and again against him. They had a couple times where they got late switches, although Gobert even held up pretty well on those uh, against the likes uh, of Harden, Paul George uh, and Kawhi so really this high-powered Clippers offense they only got to 105 points via a 37 point fourth quarter in which they went small and Russell Westbrook was matched up with Gobert on both ends uh, and amazing the Wolves were up comfortably the only thing that enabled the Clippers to get back into it was intentionally fouling Rudy he makes one out of two both times although he had had a couple of pretty ugly misses in the first half so Finch takes him out and then the Clippers were able to actually start scoring they get back to make it interesting they get back within three but were never able to get a shot in the air uh, that could have tied it never able to get possession when they were within one possession uh, and, because, and yeah. quickly that is a reminder of why and it's funny with it being the Clippers considering DeAndre Jordan was a part of some of some of the early iterations of Hacka or some of the iterations the original intention was to get that player out of the game now there there have been different intentions at different times but it is and considering how dominant Rudy Gobert was defensively that it you know that it worked in exactly the way it was originally intended is it it happens but it is somewhat unusual in modern vintage and so when Gobert can come back in under two minutes when you can't uh, intentionally foul anymore there's a defense only possession Gobert comes back in at the 214 mark and Wolves are still up nine Harden hits a step back Anthony Edwards had a, a couple of flubs the first he comes back down they're still up six with under two minutes to go and he takes a, a three after only running about 10 seconds off the clock and it's one thing if you have a layup there you don't just totally go into prevent offense but up two possessions like that under two minutes to go it's probably important to run as much time down as you reasonably can and then Russell Westbrook gets the rebound Gobert blocks Kawhi Leonard's jumper uh, Kawhi had scored over him earlier in the game in a similar situation uh, but Gobert blocks him uh, on uh, 
a shot from the dotted line. Anthony Edwards then immediately throws the ball away, trying to fast break back down the other end. Harden drives, sets up Powell in the corner for an impossible sidestepping three. Great decision to just take whatever three is available down six with a a minute 10 left. So it's within three. And then Rudy Gobert goes to set a screen with 59 seconds left. And Russell Westbrook intentionally fouls Rudy Gobert because he's in the action. He doesn't grab him, but he, you know, he disguised it well enough. Like, oh, I was just jostling for position. You know, we've seen that happen with like an Andre Drummond or a DeAndre Jordan. Absolutely. I hated that decision by the Clippers. I'm not sure if it was Westbrook doing it or Ty Lue said to do it, but they were actually within three at that point with 59 seconds left. It's, you need to just get a stop there. Well, and, and the, yeah. Sorry, Nate. Not only were they were they only down three, I believe it had been five possessions since the Timberwolves had scored a point. So you're you're betting against yourself when you've been reasonably successful. No, absolutely right. And Gobert, as much as you might laugh at his free throw shooting, and indeed Westbrook was leading the charge, making fun of Rudy Gobert in the first half when he missed a couple of free throws. The broadcast was zooming in on him. He even was like talking to a fan, wanting to do play-by-play of Rudy Gobert missing the free throw. Uh, So Westbrook, maybe it was just his decision to make the quote-unquote smart play to, oh, see, we can follow him under two minutes. But Gobert is still a good bet to make one of the two free throws. And he had been making them even when they were doing the hack of Gobert. And then you're down two possessions again. Like you have a chance to get a stop and get a shot in the air to tie the game. That's what you do. You don't foul in that situation. As it turned out, Gobert makes them both. Kawhi missed a wide open three at the top as the Wolves were in some kind of weird zone, didn't know who they were guarding. Leonard just jogs up to the top of the key and misses a three that could have cut it to two. Gobert, another defensive rebound. He's fouled twice, or he's fouled with 42 seconds left as he gets the rebound, makes two more, and the game was over at that point in time. Up seven uh, with uh, under 40 seconds to go for the Wolves. And to follow up on the point that you were making before about the the intentional-ish foul, we can call it, is that the Clippers ended up never getting a shot in the air to tie the game like they never even got particularly close after that and so it's the the idea that they they kind of took the chance out of their own hands and and yes rudy gobert can miss some free throws but and he ended the game uh seven to 14 with four makes in in the final two minutes but it is I mean, it does seem like a tactical blunder, especially when your defense has been doing well to just give the other team an out and put, and honestly, just to also put control of the outcome in the other team's hands when you could potentially just take it yourself. So let's talk more about the, the meat of the game. Let oh, me ask you this, Danny. Uh, oh, you want to do the, the Clippers well, stats first? Well, no, no. One, yeah, well, one other thing I want to say before I get the Clippers. Or well, the, I'll do yeah. the stats first. And then, oh, no, yeah, I'll do the, 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 the Wolf stats. Route. I'll do the Wolf stats so we don't forget. Minnesota now on the season, 28 and 11, 7 and 5 since last. 1560 but that's still a sterling overall record fifth in net rating uh plus 7.1 which is slightly behind the clippers 17th in offense and that still numero uno in defense bpi projects them to finish one win behind the clippers 54 and 28 and 100 chance to make the missing playoffs but the other piece of context just as we're talking about the story of the game avita zubats did not play due to right calf issue so that did mean that mason Plumley made his is returned in the rotation he and tice played a combined 38 minutes and so that meant that the clippers went small in some form for 10 yeah most of that taking place in the fourth quarter for zubats uh, he had been feeling some discomfort in his calf he also 
Tua had a calf issue in February, I believe, of last year. And he tried to warm up. As he warmed up, the calf actually got tighter. They tried to loosen it up. It didn't work. So basically 30 seconds before tip-off, everyone was informed that Zubats couldn't go and the tights would start and Plumlee would come off the bench. We'll talk more about them momentarily. But Anthony Edwards was unbelievable in this game uh, going against some of the wing defenders that uh, the Wolves have. 33 points, 10 of 16 from the field. Only took four threes, but he made half of them and was 11 of 12 from the foul line. Had six assists, five turnovers, plus 13 in his 38 minutes. And the Clippers started off guarding him with Terrence Mann. And, you know, the Wolves weren't running like everything through Edwards. You know, one of the things we talked about is how Mike Conley still has a, a, such a large share of the time of possession, uh, despite the fact that Edwards and Towns uh, are their big scorers. So Edwards, he just played a pretty judicious game. But when it really kind of came to a head strategically is right at the start of the third quarter, where Edwards decided he was going to get down in the post against Terrence Mann, and Terrence Mann couldn't do anything with that. Edwards was just too big and strong for him. Edwards uh, got based line a couple of times on spin moves scored I thought that the Clippers could have done a better job of showing some help there and forcing Minnesota to beat him from the outside Wolves were 13 to 26 from three but they only got up 26 attempts uh, and they uh I, I thought they could have let the Wolves fire away maybe even more than they did in this one but they're shooting 50 percent, so that, that's tough to in the moment uh, to say that that should have been the strategy so Clippers had started with Kawhi Leonard on Mike Conley interestingly and they started with Paul George guarding Carl Anthony Towns. I would have thought that Paul George is kind of the more slithery defender and Leonard is stronger. Maybe you would go a different direction there. That's not what they decided to do. And so then they have to switch Kawhi onto Anthony Edwards uh, so that they can take away Edwards, just overwhelming man in the post. And man, at that point, basically was largely excised from the game. Only ended up playing 19 minutes. If he wasn't going to guard Edwards, they felt, why have him out there? Instead, they go to Westbrook. Westbrook spent a bunch of time guarding Carl Anthony Towns. He spent a bunch of time guarding Gobert at the end of the game as well. The Kawhi versus Edwards matchup was absolutely fascinating uh, on defense. Edwards uh, was pretty good. I mean, he wasn't creating like a massive volume of shots, uh, but uh, when he did attack Kawhi one-on-one, he was able to get to spots pretty well uh, or get fouled. Wasn't able to physically dominate him necessarily, but he's able to come off some screens uh, and it wasn't like Kawhi uh, shut him down at all. And then uh, now when Jaden McDaniels tried to go at Kawhi, when that was the matchup, uh, Kawhi picked his pocket uh, a couple of times. McDaniels was guarding Kawhi on the other end. And I thought Kawhi was able to get pretty good looks using his strength. But because Gobert is back there in a lot of these matchups, he's not able to really like put McDaniels in the goal. Uh, And Paul George just had a miserable shooting night. Five of 19, four of 13 from three. How many shots did Paul George take at the rim? Because I think it was maybe like one or two. Like that was, I thought Gobert had the biggest effect uh, on him and on James Harden. Your instinct is correct. Paul George, he only took one shot in the restricted area and two shots in the upper paint in the entire game yeah and also uh, george was being guarded well and and, and harden had no shots in the restricted area sorry as well yeah yeah and harden was four of 14 two of nine from three eight assists four turnovers and Harden had an okay defensive game using his hands uh, to strip guys a little bit. Like, I didn't think he really got taken advantage of defensively a ton. 
And, you know, Clippers usually could have won this game if the Wolves don't go 13 to 26 from three of the four LA. They also shot 44% from downtown on 39 attempts, which is kind of more than they want to be taking. And so they only shot, uh, they shot worse from two point range than three point range in the game and didn't really get to the foul line a ton either. So the Wolves defense definitely did bother the Clippers. And that takes me back to the Gobert effect and how this Clippers team can't put Gobert into difficulty the way that 2021 Clippers team could with the Marcus Morris at center and man kind of hanging out in the corner. And when they did go small, it was Gobert guarding Westbrook. Westbrook hit a couple of threes from above the break, but that's not something you want to be counting on as the Clippers and Westbrook had a very Westbrookian game with 13 assists, some great interior passes, but three turnovers and you know some perplexing drives and shots at the rim as well. Overall, I thought he was pretty good. Uh, plus two for the game uh i think it was his first double digit assist game in quite some time and and he pushed the pace which was important against this wolves team but westbrook giving gobert a place to hide defensively i thought was really important and so that's part of why like the clippers defense is definitely better they also maybe they are much better defensively against this wolves team if they have zubats rather than tice uh, and Plumley, who uh didn't really give them a ton of rim protection although he he made a few nice plays uh, communicating defensively and Tice was only one out of two from three, it only took one two-point field goal. He's not much of a room protector either in the starting unit. So this wasn't both these teams being whole, but it's about as close as you can hope to get for this uh, time of year. And uh, the Wolves looked like the better team in this one, mostly due to that awesome defense led by Rudy Gobert. One other stat I wanted to mention, because you and I, when when this disparity is significant enough, I think it tells part of the story. Minnesota, 175 offensive rating in transition. Clippers, 90. So not only did the Wolves run more, they were significantly more successful there. And that, that makes it it's a part of the story as well. Yeah, and actually on the broadcast, they quoted cleaning the glass that the Clippers were one of the league's better teams uh, the last month or so in terms of their transition offensive rating. Not so in this one. Kyle Anderson is basically the backup point guard now for the Wolves. No Jordan McLaughlin, no Shake Milton in this one. So it's Anderson, maybe Nikhil Alexander-Walker as well. Anderson hit a corner three that took him. Somehow his release is even slower than it was when he came into the league, but he did actually make that one. Uh, and he also gives them another body on Kawhi, uh, his former teammate. Anderson drafted by the Spurs back back in 2014 so that's a, another interesting dynamic Nas Reed didn't play a ton in this one only 14 minutes with Towns and Gobert both going 37 each and Towns you know, he had a relatively efficient game it had some big bully ball drives two of four from three both those happening in the first half when the Clippers just like closed out short to him for some reason but uh, putting George on him and you know guarding him with wings basically the whole game did take away some of his three-point game and Reed was quiet he had one beautiful drive and Euro step and hit a couple of threes fading to his left that were remarkably quick releases and he was plus six in his time but also you don't really want Reed out there going against some of the Clippers main units and I, I thought another thing that was interesting in this game we noticed it in the game we did for the strategy stream last year for the clip or last week for the Clippers that this is going against Anthony Davis it was the same with Rudy Gobert the Clippers love to involve a bad defender on the other team in this case a lot of times it was Mike Conley because the Wolves don't have many bad defenders or it would be Towns and so they'd put two on the ball they tried to hide Towns on you know Man or Westbrook and one of these guys who's not like a pick and pop threat so they put two on the ball give it to Westbrook or Man coming downhill and again with 
with Rudy Gobert back there in a two-on-one, largely unsuccessful. So because of Rudy Gobert being back there, the Clippers couldn't really take advantage of the one guy, Mike Conley, that they felt like they had a physical advantage against on the perimeter. It's a great point and part of how this would be a fascinating playoff series if we get it really whatever round it would come in. Yeah, and it's interesting. If the Clippers don't add another guy to this group, and P.J. Tucker, even with the Zubats out, uh, was not uh, called upon in this game. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is one, I mean, I think home court in this matchup would be massive, but I think this is one where the Wolves uh, could be pretty interesting going against uh, the Clippers because I don't know that the Clippers have an antidote for Rudy Gobert. And they don't have the malleability of their lineups that they used to in other groups, and and that's a, a, a huge potential detriment. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Anything else in this one or do you want to move on? No, let's talk about uh, the San Antonio Spurs on fire. Three and eight in their last 11. They no longer have a double digit negative net rating. They're seven and 31 negative 9.0 net rating. 26th in the league. They're not even one of the three worst teams anymore. 26th on offense, 25th on defense. They project for still the worst record in the Western Conference, 18 and 64. They will not be making the playoffs, but they have had the benefit uh, of playing a couple of the other teams that now have worse net ratings than them. They throttled the Pistons, put up a buck 30 on them, and then took care of the Hornets, who are quietly 1-14 in their last 15 games with a negative 18.5 net rating over the last month, and they were no match for the Spurs, even in LaMelo Ball's return game. Well, Nate, it wasn't particularly quiet in this one, having watching it to, to focus on the Spurs. And this part of the reason I was interested in this was it was, you know, two teams that are both bad this year. And I, I like to watch teams against relatively... Uh, are you fired up for uh, Wiz Pistons tomorrow, Martin Luther King Day? I mean, actually, yes, kind of. Um, <laughs> the Marvin Bagley revenge game. Um, but it, it, I think that the... For me, the 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 kind of the idea there is that, well, it's, you get to see a little bit of rubric. Now, it is worth noting the Hornets, even with getting Lamelo Ball back, they are still they're still very injured. No Mark Williams, so Nick Richards was in the starting lineup, and you have you have PJ Washington is is out, and a few other guys. But for me, the there were the two big things. One I was trying to watch was how did Lamelo Ball look physically, and I thought generally he did a good job. He drilled a couple of threes early, and you're like, oh, like he's all the way back. And then it got a little shakier from there, other than him taking 16 free throws in 27 minutes of action. But for me, the biggest story was Victor Wembanyama being absolutely outstanding and almost kind of like like comical at times with how how dominant he was in the game. And so you look at Victor Wembanyama's stat line. 26 points, 9 of 14 from the field, got to the line six times, and, you know, 11 rebounds, two blocks, and assist. You're like, oh, that's, that's pretty good. Also, you know, light plus 22. He did all that in 20 minutes because the way that Greg Popovich was using him was play Wemby for the first six minutes of a quarter, then sit him, you know, so play him for six. And then it just so happened that in part because Wembyama was so great that they didn't need him for the fourth quarter. And so that's how you end up with 20 minutes as opposed to like 24 or so. And 
there were a lot of different examples of what what Wembenyama could do out there. Like there were just there were a couple plays where like the ball was just kind of like bouncing a little bit loose. Wembenyama gets it, and just because there's no one who can stop him, just like recovers and dunks, and you just start cracking up. And my single favorite play, though, because in part because it involved another good player making the right decision, was there was a play where Victor Wembanyama is guarding Nick Richards on the play. And LaMelo Ball drives with the intent to pass. And so what LaMelo Ball was trying to do on the play, and does so successfully, is get quote, become threatening enough that Wembanyama leaves the player. And, and you know, LaMelo's can be better finishing than his brother, but still not always the greatest in that circumstance. And so Wembanyama comes over. And so LaMelo Ball makes the exact right decision, beautiful angle on the pass. It's just that Victor Wembanyama is so damn long, he blocks the shot anyway. And it's just like, oh yeah, that's right. The rules of basketball don't always apply to him. And I thought that was a really fascinating example of it. We did get to see Wembanyama play a lot more with Trey Jones. None of the Spurs played more than 26 minutes because this game was out of hand relatively early. And it wasn't just Trey Jones. I mean, there was that clip that was going through Reddit and everything a few weeks ago of Wembanyama like miming the lob pass that he would have gotten. It did seem like San Antonio was doing a better job finding him in those situations. And then if they weren't finding him, there was a play where Wembenyama just like basically volleyballed the ball to himself over Nick Richards, a tall human being, and just like hit patty caked it a couple times and then just dunked it. And it's just completely ridiculous. And Wembenyama was coming off uh, his first career triple-double with 10 assists in the victory over Detroit. Uh, and Wembenyama, the last three games that he's played, uh, he, he did not play in the second night of a back-to-back in Chicago on Saturday due to this ankle issue that also has him on this 25-26 minute limit. Uh, but the last three games he's played, plus 17 in a two-point loss to Cleveland in 25 minutes, and then the blowout against Detroit. I mean, he had that triple-double in 21 minutes against Detroit. He was plus 15 and then plus 22 uh, in this win over over the Hornets. So it's coming around for him. The schedule has lightened up a little bit to be sure, but uh, Wembenyama has been pretty darn solid. He had his fewest points since December 26th in this one, but of course it was uh, only after playing the 21 minutes. And you can see he had the ankle sprain, missed a couple of games, been playing 30 minutes. Ever since then, he really has been actually scoring just about as much, if not more, than he was when he didn't have the minutes limit. And he's just been way more efficient in this one. He was 7 of 10 in the paint, 6 of 9 at the rim. Uh, and just uh, really impressive work uh, from him. What else stood out for the Spurs in this one? Jeremy Sohan had a pretty confident three-pointer. And it's like, I wonder how he's doing for the year on it. And the three-point attempt rate is still really low. Three per 36 is, is not fantastic. But Sohan is making 37% of them so far, 35 of 94 on the year. There was a completely ridiculous play. I was belligerently angry where the Hornets double Jeremy Sohan in the post. And then he just like passes it to Wembenyama who's standing at the free throw line and Wembenyama dunks it. And I'm just like, what are you doing here? There were some bad process plays by the Hornets in this one. 
And then a couple of things with Keldon Johnson. Um, he he was the biggest defender in something that was more prevalent for the Spurs before this recent run of success against bad teams, where he just kept on driving into a pile of people, and it didn't work out particularly well for the season. Keldon Johnson, fifty six percent true shooting on twenty three use on twenty three usage. He's not making the three as much as you'd quite like at the big old moon ball. Um, but he, his overall efficiency has been remarkably consistent. Keldon Johnson in each of the last three full seasons and this year between 55 and 57 percent true shooting. So like that, that's about league average. But, you know, you wonder if he'd be something else. But there were a couple other wild things with Keldon Johnson. Unfortunately, both of them were negative. One of them was a play that just really bothered me. So I understand what Keldon Johnson was doing. Brandon Miller had a run out and was trying to was trying to get a dunk and Keldon Johnson was trying to make the defense play. He unequivocally was going for the ball. But when you go for the ball through a guy who's in the air, the guy who's in the air is in great physical risk. And Brandon Miller takes a hard fall and it eventually gets ruled a flagrant one. But Brandon Miller gets a lower back contusion, doesn't return to the game. And I I understand, you know, like Keldon Johnson's trying to make the hard play. I think that the league needs to get more aggressive in these circumstances because it's a completely defenseless player and it brings out a lot of injuries. And so if you're getting into player safety, it's it's something that they should consider. The last Keldon Johnson thing, I, I didn't know this was possible. He overthrew Victor Wembanyama on a lob by roughly eight feet. And so he's like, he's trying the right thing, but the ball went probably, it felt like it went closer to the shot clock than it did to Wembanyama's catch radius, which seems very difficult. Overall, it wasn't like an abysmal Keldon Johnson game, but it just so happens that coming off the bench, some of his worst moments were the most memorable this is hilarious that 14 spurs played 10 or more minutes in this game that's how much uh, of a blowout it, it ended up being one of those was dominic barlow who had three block shots uh, but he's actually been remarkably inefficient this year in part just because he's finished poorly around the basket he's a competent shooter from floater range and even mid-range and defensively he's looked okay he's also averaging 3.3 assists per 36 minutes uh, he's got some mobility but is a little bit undersized i'm still hopeful that he's going to be someone who has a career i think he's been better than some of the other centers who are playing like charles bassey who unfortunately is out now with the a torn acl but he's someone that we will will keep an eye on and you know hopefully he doesn't play at all for our sake because then we can fawn over him next summer league <laughs> as well and never never actually have it put to the test and i thought it was a solid game for Devin vassell he was only four of ten from the field but he made some made some nice shots actually had a really good steal where he read the play from a kind of of across the court went over and stole an entry pass which was good and and five assists in 26 minutes the spurs need to and he actually i thought had the best eyes for Wembenyama of anyone on the team though trey jones had some good passes as well so that brings us to the 19 and 19 houston rockets they just got Dylan Brooks back from that oblique issue. What else uh, about how they've been playing recently? Well, they're five and seven since the last 1560, but we wondered, especially if the opponent shooting was going to come back to earth, if that was going to change things for them. Still 11th in net rating, plus 2.2. Very good. 21st in offense, sixth in defense. I still think that sixth in defense is a little rosy. Uh, BPI is very negative on them, projects the Rockets to go 38 and 44, which is out of the play in. That would be the 12th seed in the West. And one quick stat before we get into the, the breakdown that you did. Last year, the Rockets turned it over, worse in the league, 16.3% of their possessions. That has improved from 163 to 13.1, ninth in the NBA. 
And it's not the only change, but just simply getting a shot up on that extra 3% of possessions is a big part of them jumping from 27th in offense to, well, now it's 21st. So Men Thompson has been back for about a month or so now, uh, suffered another ankle injury, and the top line numbers uh, are not amazing for him. Uh, anything that stands out in those uh, to you before we get into some of the film that I watched on him? I mean, you don't love 48% true shooting. That is is not something that you're looking for. And even though we know both Thompson twins are, are not the greatest shooters, you can kind of hope that they can get enough around the basket, get those transition things to get that at least to a passable number you kind of function in a way like a big man and he is a good passer but the the assist rate per 36 not fantastic either yeah 4.5 and looking at seth stats 26 percent time of possession which is not as much as you'd see from like a pure point guard that might be more in the 30s he'll usually bring the ball up when he's in the game uh, but he's also often playing with another guard whether it's van vliet uh, or aaron holiday uh, doesn't play that much uh, with jalen green necessarily you know, he's coming in with the bench group uh 28% total usage per sus stats and 9.7% of that uh, are plays uh, on which he's setting up a teammate for a shot so yeah that 4.5 assist is not crazy per 36 that 9.7% playmaking usage and your average point guard is probably more than the 15% range there but he's not really operating as like a primary pick and roll threat necessarily a couple other interesting stats on him negative 4.4 offensive EPM I mean remember that true shooting is so bad uh that's basically 10 percent below the league average uh, but he's a uh, neutral on defense uh negative 0. 0.3 essentially the three pointing three pointer has been awful uh and these 426 hasn't made one off the dribble yet uh which a few of them have been off the dribble and the big thing i wanted to talk about here is whether we're seeing the flashes a lot of rookie point guards have bad numbers though a lot of these rookie point guards are younger than ben thompson is as well this is age 21 season uh he's shooting a little bit better on long twos like his floater game looks viable obviously the three is terrible if you look at the long twos he just shoots a very flat shot still a lot of inconsistencies in his release when he misses he'll miss short he'll miss way off to the right uh the floater game looks a little bit better that's if he's gonna play pick and roll sure teams are gonna go under on him but you can only go under so many times like he's gonna need at least to be able to make some floaters finishing at the rim good overall but on contested finishes 53 percent. that's below the league average but for a guy driving to the basket the way he does and trying to finish there in the half court like that's reasonably solid and, and, and even guard. if he's older than the average rookie he's still learning a lot of the craft like we see players like him get a lot better at that specific element in their third fourth years yeah he also doesn't play all that much with alper and shangun so he's not playing with the traditional pick and roll threat some of his best plays were finding jeff green out of pick and roll or a spain pick and roll probably his best pass was one where he kind of just got the ball in an awkward position along the baseline and through this absolute laser bounce pass right be, uh past andre drummond who has pretty good hands actually defensively to find jeff green on the opposite side of the lane for a layup that was pretty good so he definitely has 
some pretty good feel for passing in short areas uh, on the interior. When he's off the ball, he just has no understanding of where to go. He'll try to cut some. He's getting a little bit better at that, but there are a lot of plays where he's kind of cutting into somebody, where he's just standing next to someone. He's not like, he doesn't understand because he doesn't have the experience how to play off the ball when you're a guy who can't shoot. And like one example was he gets the ball near the corner, looks to hand off, and then he just kind of retreats out to the top of the three-point line where if he had just handed off and then rolled to the basket, he would have had a dunk. And he just doesn't think of that kind of stuff to do. He doesn't think to, if he's in the dunker spot, set a flare screen for a guy to get a corner three, for example. So he's he going to need to work on that stuff because he's not going to be a primary on-ball threat anytime soon. Defensively, steal rate is high, 2.1 per 36. And he most of his steals come from just breaking on the ball quickly as a help defender when someone turns their back or if there's a ball that gets slightly loose or he's quickly double teaming the post because he's just so quick out of the starting blocks that he's able to just get on top of the guy before the ball bounces back into his hand essentially a uh, great defensive rebounder 21% defensive rebound gets a lot of contested ones he should be able to push it up there in transition but he just has a lot of ugly plays mm-hmm. as well plays like bad misses turnovers where he just doesn't really seem to have a plan necessarily some of his finishes can be pretty ugly like the one play that really stood out to me the most was he's coming downhill in the boston game where they got completely blown out and just decides to like take off a two feet from almost the left elbow and shoot this floating lefty scoop shot that just only hit the backboard where i was just like that i can't remember ever seeing an nba player taking that shot so there have been some flashes he's got 11 dunks on the year that's basically a little over 10 percent of his shot attempts he hasn't really like dunked on anybody yet and he hasn't performed well enough where like oh yeah they should give him the ball more at the end of the detroit game despite going up against his brother he doesn't play in the second half they barely eked that one out on the road Uh, that was on friday so i'm I'm a little bit concerned as of right now. Like he hasn't looked quite as athletic to me as I was hoping or as he did in that first summer league game. Maybe that's the two ankle injuries that he's had trying to work his way back from those. But I, I'm, I've been disappointed in what I've seen from him so far on the offensive end. I think he's going to be a good defender for a long time. He can really pass. He can push in transition. I think he can do more as an on-ball guy than his brother can. But clearly the jump shot is a massive liability. Bad enough that you kind of have to make the assumption that it's not going to really improve. And so I, I hope that he was a guy who, you know, despite being a weird player with his ball handling, passing, uh, athleticism, aggressiveness at his size could be a difference maker. I haven't seen quite enough of the flashes yet and too many ugly plays to make me feel like he's on that path. And this is as someone who really was high on his upside, but he, he hasn't looked like that kind of an upside player in the early going. It's a challenge. And I mean, there are still a lot of things to like about him and Thompson. I mean, the energy that he plays with and intention at times can be really good. Like the, the idea that like kind of his basketball heart is in the right place. I think he plays hard, you know, he, when he, when he, especially when he applies himself and runs the four, like that stuff, I think works really well. He's an incredible physical talent. Like those parts of it, I think are right. 
But like the guy that I think about sometimes when I watch a man is, can he make some of the, even if it's temporary, some of the adaptations that Markel Fultz has? And like Markel Fultz, much smaller human being, but has the, you know, ha- had a lot of the physical gifts and then lost a key element of his game and has, you know, Markel Fultz is still not the player that we wanted him to be when he came into the league. And like you and I both thought he was the best player in that draft class. But he kind of understood he's done a better job of understanding like what he how he can help offensively than Amen Thompson is doing so far. And considering how I thought that both Amen and Asar had unusually good feel for players, not necessarily their age, but like the relative to their competitors at overtime elite. Can they apply those elements to their limited offensive games right now while simultaneously, ideally, working to grow their offensive games so some of those limitations don't matter quite as much? Like that, the, I, I am very interested in where they started. And there are parts of it like, yes, they are the athletes that I thought I thought we were. They were. But it is also a reminder that unusual paths to success are sometimes unusual for a reason. And there are going to be players we track for a long time. And I, like you, I don't know quite what to make of it just yet. Yeah. And I, well, you said at least uh, with the respect to a men, they're the athletes we thought they were. I, I think defensively that's been true uh, for a men. You know, I thought that we would see more just like crazy highlights uh, from him early on than we have. Fair. I that Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That will do it for this evening. Uh, since we did call a, an overtime game earlier. But of course, so we'll be back for Dr. Martin Luther King Day tomorrow uh, and finish out the 1560 later in the week as well. So stay with us here on Dunkdown Prime. Thanks so much for being a subscriber. And we are running our special sale right now in honor of the upcoming mock trade deadline at the end of the month, one of our best episodes. You're going to want to be here all month long as we go through every team and what to expect from them at the trade deadline. Uh, and of course uh, keep you posted on all the trade deadline action and hey maybe even some actual nba basketball games that are happening between now and then as well thanks so much for joining us and we'll talk to y'all next time at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.